It's been a while since we have taken a look at or had a review of core values, core values. And uh, in the past, we have identified four values that are core or essential to our church, to our congregation. Also in the past, I have used about probably five, at least five sermons, uh, five Sundays, and, and preached a series of sermons on core values. Uh, today, I'm going to try to do it all in one. So, so buckle up, and uh, I hope you're ready to listen fast. Core values are the most essential parts of our identity. They explain the reason for our existence, and they provide the foundation <clears throat> for why we do what we do. A man named Lyle Shaler said this, the most important single element of any corporate, congregational, or denominational culture is its value system. And what he's talking about are core values. In other words, our core values are our most deeply held convictions and beliefs. They represent the battles from which we will not retreat. In other words, they represent those, those ideas and those convictions where we stand up and say, these are the hills that we will die on. If you know anything about the corporate world, you know that most businesses, most corporations have core values. And, and especially if you get into uh, a management level uh, job, then you will begin to learn about the core values of your company. Here's an example uh, of a company or a business core values. They have five listed there, passion, ownership, work-life balance, excellence, and respect and integrity. And uh, this is from a company that says these are our most important values, and this is what guides us in our business practices. Core values are important because they provide direction. Core values provide direction for our priorities, they provide direction for the way we uh, spend our financial and material resources. They provide direction for our ministry efforts, the things that we do, what we do as a church. You see, a church or really any organization without a clear set of core values is like a river without banks. You know what a river without banks is? It's a puddle. You see, it will run in every direction and miss the opportunity to advance its cause with speed and precision. So the core values, those 
ideas, those convictions that we have identified as a church, our core values are these. We want to be a church that is biblical, number one. Number two, that is prayerful. Number three, a church that is missional. And number four, a church that is relational. These are the four values that we want to guide and direct our existence and the things that we do and the efforts that we engage in to be biblical, prayerful, missional, and relational. First of all, a church that is biblical. In January of 1997, a man named Sam Sebastiani, something like that, a man who was a member of one of California's most prominent winemaking families, died from eating poisonous mushrooms. They were mushrooms that he himself had gathered near his home in Santa Rosa, California, and uh, came to find out what he had eaten were what is known as death cap mushrooms. This one particular mushroom is the cause of 95% of lethal mushroom poisoning in worldwide, uh, you know, the, the people who collect mushrooms. There's a name for them, and I don't remember exactly what it is, other than maybe foolish. There, there's an official name for people. Now, I know there are some people that really know what they're doing, I guess. Uh, but uh, anyhow, this uh, one particular mushroom is fatal about 35% of the time, 35% of the time that this mushroom is, is uh, consumed, uh, identified mistakenly as inedible, and found out not to be edible. A lady named Roseanne Soloway, a poison control center administrator, says this, a level of presumed expertise is not enough to save your life. And isn't that true? Just thinking that you know what you're doing is not enough to keep you safe if you are a mushroom collector, eater of wild mushrooms. Someone else has said one of the most sinister aspects of deadly mushroom poisoning is the delay between ingestion and the onset of symptoms. And the stronger the poison, the longer it takes to show itself. And often by the time a person is aware of a problem, it's too late to do anything about saving their lives. You see, friends, there are some things that you should not attempt to learn by trial and error because the price of a mistake is far too high. And as we think about this business of caring for souls, caring not only for our own souls, but also directing, leading others, trying to teach others the care for their souls, We can't just be lone rangers and kind of make things up as we go along. We need a guidebook, a textbook. And our textbook is the Bible, God's holy word. The Bible tells us about itself in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching. It is profitable for reproof also for correction and for training. It's profitable for teaching, helping us to learn. You know, I, when I want to learn something, uh, I want to 
go to an expert. I want to learn it from something, uh, from someone that really knows what they're talking about. And when we learn about following after the Lord Jesus, when we learn about the care for our souls and try to teach others to do the same, we need to rely on God's word, not just our own ideas. You know, it's sad. It's so popular today uh, to be spiritual but not religious spiritual but not religious in fact common a common response when when people are asked about religion or what they believe well i'm not a religious person but i'm a very spiritual person i'm not even sure what that means but it's dangerous to be a spiritual person and not be a religious person. Often the idea of religion is, is denigrated and criticized, yet friends, we need to be aware that if we are resting on a proper foundation, it's okay to be religious. We ought to be very religious about this book and about our adherence to this book. To do that is simply to say, I'm going to be faithful to what this book teaches me and use it as the guide for my life. We as a church ought to understand that the foundation for what we do and why we do the things that we do are based on this book. It teaches us all we need to know. It is able to reprove us. In other words, it lets us know when we are off track, when our teaching is wrong, when our, our teaching is in danger of going in a direction of heresy. Not only is it able to correct us, or, or rather to show us when our teaching is wrong, it is able to correct us. It's able to help us get back on the path of right teaching and right doctrine. It is good for training good for training. This is something I think that is neglected far too often in the church and in our spiritual life. And that is the fact that using the words of the Apostle Paul, we are to exercise ourselves unto godliness. In other words, we don't believe that anything God does in our heart and in our life is like a magic uh, zap that fixes everything that's wrong with us and makes us everything we're supposed to be. I wish it were that easy. Don't you? Yeah, sure. Wouldn't that be nice? But there is nothing. Now, thank God, I don't want to, to de-emphasize or take anything away from both a converting, a, a salvation experience, or an experience of, of having our hearts cleansed and purified by faith and being filled with God's Spirit, what we sometimes call entire sanctification. Those moments are important moments in the life of every believer. But if we rely on those moments where, you know, we say, I've been to the altar to be saved, check that box. I've been to the altar to be sanctified or filled with the Spirit, and check that box. And then we say, oh, I'm good now. Then, friends, we are, we are missing, I, I, I don't know what the percentage would be. We're probably missing at least 80% of what the Christian life is all about. 
You see, those, those times, those uh, crisis moments are important. It's important that we have them happen, but they are nothing more than doorways or gateways into a walk with the Lord that is ongoing, and day after day, we learn to exercise ourselves. We train to become everything that God wants us to be. And it's all based on this book. We want to be a church that is biblical. We also want to be a church that is prayerful. Prayerful. Jeremiah chapter 33 and verse 3, the Lord says to his people through the prophet, Call to me and I will answer. Call to me and I will answer. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 7, Jesus gives us these words, Ask, seek, knock. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. In other words, we are invited by God to come to him in prayer. And yet, how often do we make this part of our lives a a minimal part of our lives. And I feel that I need to be honest with you and tell you that this is something that I'm still working on. I am a Bible reader, Bible studier, and I'm probably a more faithful, more consistent Bible reader and Bible student than I am a prayer. And I ask God to forgive me and seek his help to be more of a prayer warrior. How little we realize prayer is probably the most powerful force that exists in this universe. And yet all too often we do not take advantage of it. You see, God connects with humanity through divine revelation. That is through his word. That is through the revelation of himself through his son, Jesus Christ. God connects with us through divine revelation. We, however, connect with God through prayer. We seek God. We learn to know him. It's how we connect with God. It is also as we as we train ourselves to, for godliness, as we engage in whatever ministry efforts, if we try to do something for God and for his kingdom, it is through prayer that we access a power that is beyond our own uh, personal strength or influence or personality, but we're able to access divine power, the power of God's spirit through prayer. A man named David Huxley in October 1997 set a world record. <clears throat> you know what he did? He pulled a 747. Something that weighed 187 tons, I understand. And under his own body weight and strength, he got into a harness. This, that's him. He got into a harness fastened to a, a rope, fastened to this jet airplane, and leaned in and with all his might began 
tugging and pulling until he got that thing rolling. And he pulled it for a distance of 100 yards, 300 feet. That's, that's the length of a football field, right? Yeah. Now, when you compare that distance, 100 yards, to how far airplanes are supposed to go and how fast they're supposed to go, that airplane really didn't go very far, and it didn't go very fast. But he moved it, and that's impressive that he did it with his own body weight and strength. But, you know, I know a better way for that airplane to move. Fire up the engines and let it go under the power that, it's, that is designed to move it. And it will get off the ground and go places. And friends, I'm afraid that in the church and in our own Christian experience, our efforts to live the Christian life for ourselves and our efforts to do uh, for God's kingdom, to do something for God's kingdom is like David Huxley getting in the harness and saying, okay, let me try to be a Christian. Let me try to do something for God. And, and we strain and we pull and, and try to do something. But friends, there's a better way. God invites us to come to him in prayer and rely on a strength that is beyond our own resources, beyond our own ability. Someone has said this, when our connection with God is primary, there will be power and blessing for our efforts and activity. But when our efforts and activity are primary, we will lose our connection with God and there will be little power or blessing. We want to be a church that is biblical. We want to be a church that is prayerful. Everything we engage in is undergirded and supported by prayer, by seeking the blessing of God and the power of His Spirit. We also want to be a church that is missional. A church that is missional. Now, in some circles, this has gotten to be a buzzword in the larger uh, evangelical church world. And I'm not entirely sure what other churches and, and other denominations mean when they talk about being missional. But what I mean when I tell you we want to be a church that is missional is the idea that the church is more than just a club for Jesus enthusiasts. And I think too many times that that is, the, that is the idea that people have of the church. It's just a Jesus club. It's a club for Jesus people. And we get together and, you know, we sing and we talk about Jesus and hear about Jesus, but that's, that's all it is. No, it, it's far more than that. We have a mission. God has called us to do something. There, were, uh, there was a couple in a car wreck and one of them was injured quite badly. The other one, not quite so badly. He was able to, to climb out of the car and, and help this other very injured person to, to get out and, and carried this injured person and looked not too far away where, where they had crashed. They saw a sign advertising a, a medical clinic, a health clinic. 
And so he thought, maybe if I can get my friend over there, they can help him, at least get started helping him receive some medical care. And so struggled carrying the body of his friend uh, injured over to where this medical clinic was. And, and the doors were all locked up and there didn't seem to be any activity, nothing going on. And so he pounded on the door. And finally, after a while, somebody came to the door and, and cracked it open and said, hello. And he said, my friend here has just been injured, is injured quite badly, and we need help. And he said, well, what do you want me to do about it? And he said, well, you have a sign here that says, advertises you're a health clinic, a medical clinic. And, and they said, oh, this hasn't been a medical clinic for quite some time. I just live here. And that poor individual trying to find help for his friend looked at that man and said, well, then you need to take down your sign." if you're not going to help anyone. I wonder how many churches need to take down their sign. If we're not going to do anything to bring lost people to Jesus, and I, I know I'm, I'm not critiquing you. I'm just, you know, I hope you understand what I'm saying. I hope you hear my heart. I know that most of you have a heart for lost and hurting people. But God help us if we ever come to the place where people hurting and lost need Jesus and aren't able to find the help that they need inside our doors. Beyond that, God forgive us and God help us if we aren't going outside of these four walls to where the lost and the hurting are because there are many that will never come to us. We need to take the good news to where they are. There are two aspects of the mission, just quickly. The first is that we are to evangelize. To evangelize, that word simply means that we are to tell the good news. To tell the good news. Paul, in Romans chapter 10, gives us these words. Beginning with verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for, this, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. The first aspect of our mission is that we are sent. We are people who are sent. Jesus said in John chapter 20 and verse 21, As the Father has sent me into the world, so send I you. And you may be someone who says to yourself, I'm not a preacher. I'm not a teacher. I don't have any special skills or abilities that I can use. Yes, you do. You may not be a preacher, you may not be a teacher, but every single one of us as Jesus followers are sent into the world and wherever we go, we are called upon to do something to represent Jesus. And if you don't know what it is, begin praying, begin seeking, 
that ought to be at the heart of every person that really knows Jesus is to want to do something for Jesus and begin to seek Him and pray, Oh God, what is it that I can uniquely do for you that no one else can do? You see, that's true of every one of us. 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter tells us that we are to be ready to be prepared to give an answer to every person, to every man, a reason or a defense for the hope that is within us. Be ready. The second part of the mission is to make disciples. To make disciples. In other words, we are to help people go beyond conversion. Wonderful to get people converted. Love to see people seek God and and weep and pray and confess their sins and come up with a smile on their face knowing that their sins have been forgiven. But we can't stop there. The mission is to make disciples. And Jesus gives us the great commission in Matthew 28, the end of that chapter. It's the last part of the Gospel of Matthew that As we go into the world, we are to make disciples of all nations, of all people, teaching them, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. In other words, as we go and as we evangelize and people get converted, in other words, they become a Christian, they are saved, From that moment, we begin helping them learn how to live like Jesus taught us to live. Not just telling people what they ought to do. I think that's kind of the idea or the image that that a lot of people have of the church and of Christians is that they just, it's just telling us what we ought to do. No, not just what we ought to do, but actually helping people learn, first of all, what Jesus said. And then learn how practically to do it on a day-to-day basis. We want to be a church that is biblical, that is prayerful, that is missional. And finally, a church that is relational. A church that is relational. This is the one that holds all the others together. And they all share this in common. All the other three. To be biblical, prayerful, missional. All of these are are woven together by this final core value of being relational. You see, the scripture is an account of the relationship between God and man from the very beginning. God's relationship with humanity, how that relationship was broken, and then how God began to engage in the world to restore the broken relationship between humanity and himself. Prayer is our primary means of communication to God. Prayer is what helps us maintain our relational connection to God and provides direction and strength for our collaboration with God in the mission that He has given us. God's intention all along is that we should be relational, both relational in uh, uh, respect to Him, to be in relationship with Him, and also relational with each other. John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus gives us the biblical definition of eternal life. 
You know what that is? It is not simply life that just goes on and on forever. But the biblical definition of eternal life, Jesus says, is this, that they might know thee and Jesus, the son whom you have sent. In other words, to have eternal life is to be in relationship with God. God's intention is that we would be in relation with him. It is also his intention that we be in relationship with one another. With one another. This, this little phrase. People say, anytime you hear somebody say, oh, I don't need the church. I can be a Christian without the church. Maybe, maybe you ought to remember this. This little phrase, one another, is used about a hundred times in 94 different New Testament verses. And it has to do with how we relate to one another and what we are to do in our relationship with each other. And it is what the church is designed for. And many of these examples of these one another uh, verses, they're not just suggestions, but they are commands. Forgive one another. Bear one another's burdens. Confess your faults one to another that you may be healed. The mission is also about relationships. It is about bringing people into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And then the relationships that exist in the church are all about discipleship, as we mentioned a moment ago. In other words, we help people come to a point of conversion that is introducing them to Jesus Christ. And then we walk along with them in relationship, helping them to learn how to live for Jesus Christ. Our core values, we are biblical. We are, I hope, prayerful and missional, and relational. They, these, these encompass what we want to define who we are and direct what we do. In closing, I'm sure you all recognize this picture is the Taj Mahal, a place that I've never been but just seen pictures of. I'd love to go there. It is a breathtaking white marble mausoleum that was commissioned by the Mughal emperor Shah Jahan for his beloved wife, Mumtaz Mahal. I'm not, I know I'm not saying it right, but anyway, it's the best, best shot I can give it. It was in the year 1607 that the Shah, the, the grandson of Akbar the Great, first met this young lady who was to become his favorite wife the favorite of three wives that he had. At the time that he met her, he was not yet the fifth emperor of the Mughal emperor. He was 16 years old, a, a prince at the time. And uh, he, during this time of his life as a teenage boy, he would circulate through the royal bazaar flirting with the young girls from the high-ranking families that he would run into in the bazaar. At one of these booths, Prince Karam, as he was known, met Arjumand Banu Begum, the 15-year-old young woman whose father was soon to be the prime minister and whose aunt was married to his father. 
Although it was love at first sight, the two young people were not allowed to marry right away. There was someone else that he had to marry as a matter of state, politics, what have you. But eventually he was allowed to take another wife and he married this young lady. On March 27, 1612, Prince Kram and his beloved, to whom he gave the name Mumtaz Mahal, which means chosen one of the palace, they were married. She was a beautiful young lady as well as intelligent and tender-hearted. The public was enamored with her in no small part because she cared for the people. She diligently made lists of widows and orphans to ensure that they were given food and money and cared for. A very kind young woman. In 1631, three years into the Shah's reign, a rebellion led by Khan Jahan Lodi was underway. The Shah took his military out to deal with this rebellion about 400 miles from where they lived and in order uh, to deal with this rebellion. And as usual, his favorite wife accompanied him in spite of being heavily pregnant at the time. On June 16, 1631, she gave birth to a healthy baby girl in an elaborately decorated tent in the middle of the encampment. And at first, all seemed to be well. But they soon realized that that young woman, the favorite wife of the Shah, was dying. And it wasn't long until she passed from this world. The moment that the Shah received word of his wife's condition, he rushed to her side. And early on the morning of June 17th, just one day after the birth of their daughter, she died in her husband's arms. The Shah was filled with grief, and he, in an effort to direct his emotion, he poured his, his energies into designing an elaborate and expensive mausoleum that would bring all those that had come before it to shame. And if my memory serves me correctly, the, the Taj Mahal is covered in white, Marble, and I believe the cost at that time is is calculated to be somewhere in the neighborhood of of eight hundred million or so dollars. It's just an incredible amount of money. Not much is known about the primary architect, but it is believed that the Shah himself was passionate about the architecture and the design of the building and worked on the plans directly with the input and aid of a number of the best architects of his time. A lot of help, labor, I think 20,000 laborers were hired to begin work on this building and and construction began and it continued and continued on for some years now that's where as far as i can tell the the truth begins to shift into what is perhaps legend but one of the legends behind the taj mahal says that the Shah in his grief grew consumed with the project of the building of the Taj Mahal. 
and he continued to direct his energies into this construction project. And as years passed, he gradually lost sight of the original purpose, which was to honor his first love, his wife who had died. And as the story is told, one day he was walking through the construction site of the Taj Mahal, and as he crossed the the middle of a large open area, he bumped into a dusty wooden box and turned to some of the workers nearby and commented something about the box and what is this box doing here and instructed for that box to be discarded and done away with without realizing that he had just given orders for the disposal of the remains of his wife whom he had dearly loved. Friends, we must not forget the reason we exist. Why are we here? Why are we gathering week after week in this building, meeting together? Too many times in too many churches, I'm afraid, we've become like the Shah. We, we began passionate about a purpose, passionate for the reason for our existence, yet as time passes and we grow distracted by other things, other values, we lose sight of the original purpose for which we exist. And our core values of being biblical and prayerful, missional and relational I want to keep before you. That's why every once in a while I bring them back to you, bring them back to your attention to remind us this is who we are, this is why we exist. And may God help us to put our energies into fulfilling the purpose, the reason for our existence, and let these values guide all that we do. Amen. Let's stand.